Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Hello, and welcome to today's Commonwealth Club program. My name is Alexis Krivkovich. I'm a senior partner at McKinsey & Company and the managing partner of our Bay Area office. I'm also a newly elected member of the Commonwealth Club's Board of Governors. Today's program is virtual, but the Commonwealth Club has begun in-person programming at our headquarters in San Francisco, and we expect to do many more in-person programs in the months to come. To learn more about the club's in-person programs and how to become a member, visit the club's website, www.commonwealthclub.org. Today's program focuses on a new report produced by McKinsey, The Economic State of Latinos in America, The American Dream Deferred. McKinsey is pleased to support this program, which will focus on in-depth findings from the report, which calls for addressing the barriers preventing all Latino Americans from full economic participation in the U.S. economy. Joining us today are two of the report's authors from McKinsey, my colleagues, senior partner Lucy Perez from our Boston office and partner Bernardo Sichel from our Chicago office. Lucy and Bernardo will first give an overview of the report, and then they will be joined by Jacqueline Martinez-Garcel, the CEO and president of the Latino Community Foundation, and Bismarck Lepe, the CEO of a fast-growing Barria technology services company, to discuss the report's findings further. The panel discussion will be led by Damian Trujillo, a reporter for NBC Bay Area, host and producer of Comunidad del Valle. Before turning it over to our moderator, a quick note for everyone watching. If you have any questions for any of our panelists today, please put them in the YouTube chat box. All questions will be shared with Damian during the panel discussion portion of the program. And again, McKinsey is proud to support this program. Damian, over to you. Thank you, Alexis, for that very uh, important introduction. Uh, again, my name is Damien Trujillo, reporter with NBC Bay Area. I am pleased to be your moderator for today's special Commonwealth Club program focused on a new report by McKinsey and Company. This report, again, is called The Economic State of Latinos in America, the American Dream Deferred. This program is supported by McKinsey, uh, the latest in a series of programs it has supported at the Commonwealth Club. Now, previous club programs supported by McKinsey can be viewed on the club's website at www.commonwealthclub.org. Okay, on to today's program. Uh, today's program topic, the economic state of Latinos in America, is a timely and an important one. Latino political power is growing throughout the United States and here in California, yet the economy story remains a mixed one. As a report from McKinsey shows, there is a huge untapped economic potential in the Latino community right here in the United States. Yet there are strong barriers in place that are impeding progress, many highlighted, of course, by the pandemic, which has had a disproportionate impact on the Latino community. We have a half uh, full empty, half full uh, glass, half full, half empty situation we must address if the U.S. economy is to fully grow to meet the needs of all of its citizens. I am pleased that I am joined by several Latino American leaders who can discuss this report further and the mixed situation it presents. Now with me today uh, from McKinsey are two of the report's authors, senior partner Lucy Perez from the Boston office and partner Bernardo Sichel uh, from the firm's Chicago office. We are also joined by Jacqueline Garcel Martinez, the CEO of the Latino Community Foundation 
and Bismarck Lepe, the founder and CEO of WiseLine, a global technology service provider located right here in the Bay Area. Now, before we jump into our conversation, a reminder that we want your audience questions. If you have a question or any idea for our guests or me, please put them in the YouTube chat feature and questions will be forwarded to me throughout this entire program. I hope to get to as many of those questions as possible. Okay, let's uh, jump into the first uh, with an overview of the new McKinsey Report. We will start with Lucy Perez. Lucy. Thanks so much, Damien, and thank you to the Commonwealth Club um, for inviting us to participate in this conversation, especially given the significant role of Latinos in California. We're particularly excited about the conversation that we'll have today. You talked about a glass half full, a glass half empty, right? And as we dive into this, what motivated us to take a look at this research is we hear a lot about how Latinos are the economic engine of the United States. But what exactly does that mean? On one hand, there are indeed some very positive indicators. We talk often about how this is a demographic that has the highest entrepreneurship rate, that has high labor force participation, continued growth in consumer spend. But on the other hand, what these indicators often mask is how fragile this growth is and how large is that gap between Latinos and non-Latino whites. This is a topic that's very personal to me, but it's also personal to our firm. At McKinsey, we work with our clients, both in the public and private sector, to drive sustainable, inclusive growth. And in the U.S., realizing sustainable, inclusive growth must include Latinos. What our research shows is that if left alone, it will take too long to reach parity. We could miss the opportunity to create more than 6 million jobs, move more than 1 million American families into the middle class especially in light of the pandemic and the economic uncertainty that continues to surround us, I would argue the stakes have never been higher. What we'd like to do is to share with you a few slides, we promise, keep it light, um, to highlight what are some of the key findings from this research. And so as we look at these slides, um, a little bit of context for the work that we did here. We partner with the Aspen Institute to look holistically at how Latinos create wealth and to do so how they do it as workers, as business owners, as savers and consumers. Understand what gets in the way of that wealth creation. What are some drivers of the differences between Latinos and non-Latino whites? And really think about what could be possible if we close the gaps, right? How big is that opportunity that is available to realize a stronger American economy for all? As we did this research, one of the key pieces was a 4,000 respondent survey to go a little bit deeper onto the Latino experience and in particular understand what are some of those differences based on country of origin or generational impact. We often talk about how Latinas are not a monolith and the diversity of experiences that they have as a group. And so with this research, we really wanted to get a little bit deeper at this question. Clearly, we ended up with many more questions that we could do justice with this first report. So indeed, this is just a first report that we look forward to building up on. And in particular, now let's turn the attention to take a look at these insights. And in particular, what is the opportunity? How do we get after it? Because if we get this right, the end result is that stronger, more inclusive economy for all of us. As you look at some of the facts on this page, I am sure that to many of you, these are pretty familiar. 
the U.S. Latino population is fast growing. Um, by 2050, one in four people will be Latino in the U.S. And Latinos will make about 30% of the U.S. labor force by 2060. As we began to dig into the statistics, right, we were really thinking about the question of the American dream. Are children doing better than their parents, right? This is often referred to as the intergenerational mobility. And so we wanted to ask the question, how is intergenerational mobility for the Latino population? And what we see is the premise of the American dream is that indeed, if you work hard, you create that better future for your children. What we found when looking at the data for Latinos is that the rates of intergenerational mobility for Latinos and whites were actually comparable, particularly if we're looking at those in the bottom quartile. For those in the lowest income backgrounds, in fact, the intergenerational mobility for Latinos was higher than it is for other groups. And so this is exciting, right? Because it tells us that while we have a large proportion of Latinos that are in that bottom quartile today, there is a view there are some of those you know, key ingredients that are in place to accelerate that progression to the middle class. And so today we will dive into the different roles. How do jobs, how does new business building, saving all come together to play a role in the wealth creation journey for Latinos? With that, let me turn it over to Bernardo to dig deeper into these roles. Hi, Lucy. Um, when we did this study, we actually um, viewed Latinos in four of their roles in the economy. We have three here, but the, actually we had four. We had Latinos as workers, Latinos as business owners, Latinos as savers, and Latinos as consumers. And as, as Lucy said, there's a lot to be proud of uh, what has been achieved in the following, in, in the last few years. Um, but there's a ton of opportunity yet to close the gap. Let me give you a few facts just to um, show that that is the case. From a worker perspective, uh, despite the fact that Latinos um, make up 17% uh, of the population, they earn only 12% of total wages. Uh, we'll go a little bit more in detail and ask up why that is the case, but there's a huge disparity there. When we see Latinos as business owners, the growth rate of Latino businesses is growing at twice the rate of those of, of whites. Um, but we'll see again that despite uh, those tailwinds, there's a lot that needs to be done again to, to, to be able to unleash the power of Latino entrepreneurship. And, and finally, from a point of view of savers, um, there has been sustainable growth in terms of wealth Yet 44% of Latinos have a wealth that is less than $20,000, which is twice the rate of that of, of whites in the economy. So still much to do. Let me give you a few more facts on each one of these before we engage in a more open conversation. So let's talk about uh, a little bit about Latinos as, as workers. So Latinos earn um, roughly 73 cents on the dollar compared with, uh, with non-Latinos. And, um, and again, if we were to close the gap there, we would be able to have more than 1.1 million Latinos in the middle class if we were to close that gap. 40% um, of Latinos make less than $30,000. And when uh, you're able to combine, again, the, the size of the gap and you expand it to the overall Latino um, uh, workforce, 
the wage disparity reaches an astounding $300 billion. To give you, uh, just put that number in perspective, that is, you know, half the revenues of Walmart in the U.S. Uh, the, the reason why Latinos are not able to reach parity is really for two reasons. So one reason is the majority or, or we have a disproportionate amount of Latinos in low paying jobs. And, um, and we have uh, less than our fair share in high paying jobs. So for example, we are 17% of the workforce. Yet when you see at, uh, you know, uh, professions uh, like lawyers and academics, we have uh, around four to 5%. So one has to do with representation, but it's not only representation, is within some of the occupations, Latinos earn less than what whites earn. And so it's really working at the two sides of the equation that's going to allow us to close the gap from a worker perspective. When we uh, take the, the view of Latinos as entrepreneurs, um, you know, the tailwinds are there. Latinos are, are growing their businesses much faster than, than whites. But there are three, three aspects that, um, that, that are still concerning. So for all the growth that, that we have, only 6% of all businesses in the U.S. are owned by Latinos. Uh, so uh, again, it's, it's a third of what would be in full representation. And there are three things that are holding Latino businesses back. So one of the things is that from a revenue perspective, they have half of what, um, of what uh, the businesses uh, owned by whites have. Uh, the second thing, again, is that uh, access to capital is, is very limited, and only 35% of Latinos are able to get full funding uh, to be able to start their businesses. And the majority of them, you know, three-fourths of them have to go to family funds to be able to do it. And the final thing, again, is that the, the representation issue is an important one here. Um, many of the high-growth, high-return industries are not the ones where many of these uh, new businesses are opened at. And so once again, I mean, uh, much to be proud of or much to work on to close the gap. And finally, from a, from a wealth flow um, uh, perspective or from a saver perspective, um, again, for as much as uh, wealth has flowed to Latinos in the past few months, uh, the, the gap between Latinos and non-Latinos is even higher than it is in terms of, of regular income. So it's, uh, it's, it's almost five times higher the wealth that whites have versus Latinos. And, and a, a big part of the issue has to do on the income side, but another big part has to do that Latinos receive much less inheritances than non-Latinos receive. Uh, so the, the, the number is 6% for Latinos, it's almost 24% for non-Latinos. And when they do receive an inheritance, is much lower than what uh, non-Latinos receive. To that, you need to add the fact, again, that many Latinos still send, um, uh, still send uh, funds outside of the country. So when, when you do the math, the wealth uh, flow gap that Latinos have reaches an, an outstanding number of $380 billion. So with that, let me pass it back to Lucy so she can uh, share with you what are five of the things that we have identified that we could be doing to be able to get moving to close the gaps. Thanks, Bernardo. 
So this was a quick overview of what are we seeing, right? What's that context in which we find ourselves today as we look at the opportunity for Latinos in the U.S.? And hopefully you'll agree that this is a significant opportunity for a stronger and more inclusive American economy. Let's talk now about what it would take to realize it, to get after those numbers that Bernardo was sharing. Um, and not surprisingly, this is what I would say is this is something that will take collective action. No one group alone will help realize this. And we will see the criticality of that partnership and collaboration between the public and private sector. As we try to summarize the couple of actions that we really felt needed to be emphasized, these five really stood out. And as you heard from Bernardo, the majority of Latinos in the U.S. are workers in the central jobs that are, you know, earning minimum wage, low wages. And so thinking about the compensation levers, right, to for these workers is the first path towards that wealth creation, right? He also talked about the criticality of moving to those better job opportunities, having a higher share of those better paying jobs. So upscaling those workers to create that path to those better jobs is critical. It is upscaling on one hand, it is the educational paths, right, on the other to create those opportunities. He talked about um, the Latino entrepreneurship and how high that is, right? Like, I'm always mesmerized by the data, you know, one in 200 Latinos opening a new business each month. This is remarkable, but it is limited by that access to capital barriers that Bernardo was describing earlier. So how to increase that capital and making sure that, you know, these entrepreneurs have the ability to not only establish their businesses, but also scale them without taking on so much personal risk. Um, to the point that I was making earlier, as we think about the roles that organizations can play, it's roles that organizations can play, but also that uh, individuals in our day-to-day -day can do, right? And it is how do we invest in Latino-owned businesses, products, and services? Whether it's myself thinking about where I go for dinner, it is an organization thinking about some of their procurement choices that they're making, that opportunity to invest in these businesses. And finally, a fifth point to emphasize is the acceleration of financial inclusion, right? Creating the opportunity to tap into financial goods and services that further help accelerate that wealth creation journey. Pulling all this together, thinking about those cross-ecosystem collaborations that can help us unlock this opportunity, that can help create those more than 6 million jobs that we were describing, increase you know, um, the economic power of the country. This is something that impacts all of us. It's not just about Latinos. It really is the path to a stronger American economy. And we really look forward to the conversation today and um, the questions that I hope will keep coming through the chat. Damien, back to you. Uh, thank you, Lucy. Well, uh, just a, a lot of uh, wonderful information, useful to all of us. One thing that stood out in that report uh, to me was the Latino households spend 72% of their income in six categories, housing, healthcare, banking, broadband, food, and consumer goods. I didn't see vacation. I didn't see buying a new car. Um, and so it looks like we're always in survival mode. So let's get, get into some of that. Um, first, let's hear from uh, Jacqueline Martinez Garcel, the CEO of the Latino Community Foundation. Uh, Jacqueline is in her seventh year as head of LCF, uh, which has helped grow into one of the largest networks of Latino philanthropists in the country. 
and is the only statewide foundation solely focused on investing in Latino leaders and creating opportunities for Latinos to thrive uh, economically. So let's hear from uh, Jacqueline first, then we'll go over to Bismarck. Gracias, Damian, and thank you, Lucy and Bernardo, Bernardo for um, eloquently summarizing the main points of that report. It's a lot of digest in those 80 pages, so I hope that our audience can take a chance to read it and review. There's so much important information there. Um, and I want to start by saying two things. Um, while the report is new, the information we know is not. There are such important points that we've been hearing for decades now in terms of the importance of the Latino population investing in our economy. Um, Lucy, you started with your remarks with they are the engine, and that's what kind of queued up this conversation as to why you looked into the report. Um, today, in fact, is a day that a number of organizations are organizing a day without immigrants. And if we look back at this last two years and we think of what would have happened if the Latino worker decided not to show up to work, our economy would have been at a standstill. And a lot of the services and support that we received, um, and I say we as a collective country um, would have not been possible. We would have not been able to stay home and work from home. So I just appreciate the fact that you started the conversation from that perspective, because we are the engine and the backbone of the American economy. Um, when I said it not new to us, um, as a foundation, we've been working with a number of Latino entrepreneurs um, from the Central Valley, Central Coast into the Bay Area. And we've been hearing stories after story of how difficult it is for them to scale um, because they are locked out of the traditional institutions that exist that provide access to capital. So one of the things that we think of as a solution is to create new mechanisms and processes to allow Latinos to tap into those uh, resources avail made available to them. So when I think about the solutions, I think about community uh, CDFIs, community development financial institutions that can be created at the local community with support from state and federal government in order for Latinos to tap into the resources that are available, but they just don't have access to them. So when I think about that glass half full, part of it is how do we build those local solutions, infuse some of those federal resources that are available right now, whether it's through the American Rescue Plan or the infrastructure package, and make them accessible to Latinos. Um, we are right now in a moment of really shifting into a new normal. We as a foundation are working hard to make sure that we leverage those federal and state resources, creating new channels of distribution and administration of those resources, putting them in the hands of Latino-led organizations that have the trust and the relationships with these entrepreneurs in order for them to scale their businesses. So we remain hopeful and optimistic that as we shift from the economy that was into, Lucy, the words you use were more inclusive, and we'd like to say a just economy so that those that contribute can also prosper from it, will require that we rethink how we um, distribute those resources and not rely on the same banking institutions that have locked out Latinos for a number of reasons. And I, I there, there's not enough time right now to get into them, um, but the opportunity to create new distribution channels are there for us right now. And the second thing that I want to just highlight about this report is that 50% of that wage gap could be closed to Bernardo's point if we address 4% 
of the sectors. Here at the Latino Community Foundation, we are investing in organizations like Digital Nest in Watsonville and Salinas that are investing in young people, the sons and daughters of strawberry farm workers, to give them a space and the resources that they need to go into the tech field because they have the attributes. We know that as Latinos, work ethic, it's been passed down from our families from generation to generation. Now the opportunities to create spaces where young people can get their hands on the tools and the resources to help them, quote, upscale. And I always feel a little hesitant to use that word. I'll come back to that in a second. It's important to this conversation. But to give them the possibility of entering new work sectors that their parents were never exposed to and connecting them to jobs and apprenticeships that will allow them to exercise those skills. And then working with big companies, uh, big tech companies, to ensure that the hiring practices of those companies actually make room for our young people to come in. The last thing, Damian, that I want to say um, before I conclude my opening remarks is that the upscale part, the reason I struggle with that is because we don't, we underestimate, I don't like terms like low-skilled jobs. It takes a lot for folks to show up to some of these retail and service jobs. My parents worked in it. I worked in it. My first job was at Chuck E. Cheese and then JCPenney's. The attributes to show up early, to do customer service, to be able to have a smile on my face, to be able to produce more numbers for the companies that I work with, right? The bottom line depend on my face-to-face interactions with people. It wasn't a low-skilled job. It required a lot of me, and we don't value those attributes. We don't value, as a society, the things that go into some of those jobs that are underpaid. Um, And we have to change that narrative, because if we are really going to move people from one sector to the other, there are transferable skills and attributes that every sector needs, including technology, um, that face-to-face customer service. It may be happening behind the scenes, but we still need it. And Latinos have learned to exercise those skills in other jobs. So I'm going to stop there and hopefully um, hear more from Bismarck. Well, we're lucky to have you as a head of uh, Latino Community Foundation, uh, Jacqueline. Thank you. And yes, as a former farm worker, former strawberry picker, uh, it is not a, a low-skilled job. But it requires a, a lot of tenacity, if you will. Now let's hear, uh, I'm pr- proud to introduce now Bismarck Lepe, the CEO of WiseLine, uh, for his thoughts on this report. WiseLine, uh, in less than a decade, has grown into a prominent tech service company with operations in San Francisco and Mexico and clients in more than 20 countries around the world. Uh, Bismarck. I mean, thank you very much. And thank you for the invitation to, to come and, and discuss the, the report and, and obviously its importance uh, to our communities. I, I think one of the, the points that was highlighted um, around uh, thinking of Latinos as a monolithic culture, um, we're not. And, and I think that there's, there are day-to-day effects of the, the cultural and also political differences. Um, Mexico's proximity to, to the U.S., uh, the, the ability uh, for Cubans to declare asylum, asylum in the U.S., um, the, the free trade agreements between Mexico, U.S., and, and Canada, I, I believe create second and third order effects in the way that, that the second and third generations look at their opportunities in the U.S. Um, my parents came to the U.S. as migrant field workers, um, but they always had this belief that if they worked hard, they could achieve anything and everything. And they passed that along to, to me. And they would work two, three, sometimes four jobs each 
um, with the goal of being able to provide me a, a middle to upper middle class education. And so even though my parents were working in the fields, I had a piano teacher. Uh, and the year that they uh, combined uh, made $13,000, they bought me a $3,000 computer. And it's, it's the fact that they felt like this country was providing them an opportunity that said that forced them to say, you, I will make this investment because we believe that there is going to be a positive ROI. One thing that I'd, I'd love for us to discuss is this interesting moment in time. Uh, we, we all know that the Latinos make 70 cents to the dollar on uh, comparable jobs. Um, but if we look at the working class in general for the last X number of decades, uh, wage, wages have not grown uh, at the same pace as the cost of living has grown. When my parents uh, first came to this country in the 80s, my dad, with one day's worth of work, was able to pay uh, rent for our apartment in Oxnard, California. One day's worth of work, which allowed him, with his second and third job, to be able to save to buy a home. And I think that the asset prices have gone up so much and wages haven't necessarily kept up that it's prevented groups, especially in marginalized communities, to actually be able to invest. Like you, like you said, Damian, there's not a lot of money left for vacations or cars or any of these other investments that allow you to start to build a foundation for, for a better future. Now, we may see uh, the unemployment rate drop below 3%, which I think is actually going to allow Latinos to have some kind of power when they go to their employers and demand higher wages to hopefully be able to invest in their children's education and in their futures. Thank you, uh, Bismarck. Uh, we're going to go into some questions uh, now. Uh, and I, I think uh, the first question um, is more directed toward uh, you, uh, Jacqueline. So, so who can take the lead uh, in this? And what levers uh, need to be pushed to move on the suggested action steps to support the Latino community and to close the economic gap? Is it the president? Is it Congress? We have the first Latino as a U.S. Senator from California, Alex Padilla. Is it unions? Is it local officials? Uh, who is that, Jacqueline? So, Damiana, it's going to require all of the above. Um, it's we're, because we're at that uh, that pivotal moment, and I'm so glad that Bismarck is talking about inflation. There is this there is this space that we're in right now where we understand that what was happening before COVID hit the economy, the way it was working, how people were locked out of resources, and they were the ones who were impacted the most by this pandemic, not just health wise, but the economic fallout of it. In order for us to rebuild this new normal, it is going to require that we have all those in power from the president to Congress to continue to revise and change the policies that have locked out and Latinos from access to capital and hold those institutions accountable, have more accountability in terms of how does the private sector redistribute the wealth that they are holding on to, to communities that have not had access to it. 
And then at the very local level, there are many folks that Latino leaders that are working on solutions that are working. I think of organizations like Prospera, who incubate immigrant-led businesses by women um, and work with them to create opportunities for them to build their platforms, create new revenue resources, and work with them until they hit that 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 inflection point of becoming a scalable business. We need more of those incubators. We need more of those organizations that can bring Latinas and Latinos together, help them tap into those resources, but then work with them with the creativity that they own, right? And sharing them and being able to help them to scale it. Investing in those opportunities is what we need. And the philanthropic sector, which wasn't mentioned right now in terms of who is responsible, can play a role in accelerating that. Um, I just think about the fact that we we can't wait another 10 years to shift um, the, the, the capital that is needed in order to grow our Latino-owned businesses, Latina-owned businesses. And I just want to reference that between 2007 and 2017, it was Latina-owned businesses that helped our economy rebound. They grew up in California. They grew at a pace of 111%, which meant that from that recession that was happening, it was Latina-owned businesses that helped to rebuild our economy. So to Lucy's point, when we bet on them, on Latinas and Latinos, our economy grows stronger. And we're not so dependent on one or two sectors like for example, in California to grow the economy, but we're building a base so that when there's a crisis and, and, and one sector gets hit harder than the other, there is still a growth that's happening in that economic um, equation and that engine that will continue to help our economy bounce back up. So uh, it's all of the above, Damian. We need continued um, accountability um, at the federal and state level. And we also need to work more closely with our local leaders, investing in them and in the solutions that are working and helping to scale those solutions at this moment in time. All right. Thank you, Jacqueline. This next question, I guess, can be for any one of our panelists. Uh, the question is, how much uh, has a pandemic changed this discussion, particularly around essential workers? This is either Jacqueline, Bismarck, Lucy, or Bernardo. Who wants to uh, tackle that one? I, I can I can quickly touch on on this. Uh, so at the start of the pandemic, you know, all, what our company does is we leverage talent in one part of the world to provide services in another part of the world. So we have engineers, designers, programmers that build technology solutions that are used by hundreds of millions of people. But seventy percent of our revenue comes from U.S. based companies. At the start of the pandemic, we saw that the Hispanic population communities were impacted more so than any other group. And so we thought about, was there a way for us to be able to leverage the same kind of business model? And we started another company called MiSalud.ai that uh, using telemedicine leverages doctors in Mexico as health coaches do a lot of the, the, the basic questions that come up. Uh, and then if... Uh, prescriptions, labs, or in-persons are needed, we have U.S. licensed doctors, but we use technology to be able to make that entire communication just incredibly seamless. And so you're able to, to bring world-class healthcare uh, pennies on the dollar compared to what, what you would normally have. And the problem with the healthcare in the Hispanic communities is that you do, and, and this was mentioned in the report, you do have these healthcare deserts. You, you do have these food deserts. And so by being able to leverage technology to, to bring that to the, the Hispanic community was 
one of the things that just came to light and hopefully in the same way that we've all learned to to work remotely um, it is also creating new innovations and new opportunities for for the the hispanic community well one damien if, if i may just um a, a little bit of a different take on that question from from our side the data that we have was exactly in line of what what was shared in terms of Latinos had the biggest impact, negative impact at the beginning. And it wasn't, it wasn't even balanced between men and women. Latinas were the ones that suffered the most. And while very encouraging that the numbers have come back, the size of the gap in unemployment between Latinos and, non, and non-Latinos or, or whites has remained the same that it was at the beginning. So gains relative to Latinos and where they were at, at the height of the pandemic have uh, have uh, increased, but not necessarily the gap has not been uh, closed between unemployment of, of Latinos and non-Latinos. That, that's an important point to, to bring up. All right. Th- thank you, Bernardo. And I think the next question is, is fit for um, Lucy here. It says, um, and I think one of the answers is this misconception uh, that the uh, we, we do low-skilled jobs. So what are the common misconceptions of Latinos, uh, Lucy, when it comes uh, to the workforce? Well, I think there, there's a couple of them, right? And I think for non-Latinos, it is easy to think of Latinos as a monolith, right? And that is indeed why, as we started this research, for us, it was so key to get in and understand both the impact of country of origin and generation in the U.S. in terms of the journey, right, in terms of that opportunity for wealth creation. Um, Other things that come into play, right, two-thirds of Latinos in the U.S. are concentrated in six states, right? So as we think about the interventions, as we think about the opportunity to drive that change, it is important to be thinking about those six states that drive, you know, a disproportionate impact on the experience that Latinos have in this country. So those would be a couple of of the things that I I would highlight. Okay, thank you. Um, Next question is uh, for Jacqueline. As a CEO of the Community uh, Foundation, Latino Community Foundation, you see both sides of this equation. Is there anything in this report uh, that surprised you based on your work for the past several years? Well, as I mentioned at the beginning, um, the numbers didn't surprise us. Um, but to Bernardo's point that he just mentioned right now, um, what's troubling is that the rate of change, we're leaving Latinas yet again behind. And and that's, uh, I'm a very optimistic person, right? I say hope is not just a feeling, it's an actually uh, an action, right? We know that things can change because there are systems and policies that have set it up so that we are in the situation we are now, so we can change them. But if we don't act with a sense of urgency and boldness and and thinking big in terms of how we can make those changes, and I think about childcare, I think about education opportunities, I think about the the, the things that have put Latinas behind right now. They, they had to stay home because childcare was so expensive for them to go back into the workforce. And so when a family member became ill, they were the ones who had to step back, stay home. And whether they were going to college, they've had to put that on hold for financial reasons. There are, there are things that right now, as we think about this recovery period for our country, that we must tackle and put Latinas at the center. Because if we do that, the rest of the folks that are struggling right now will also be lifted up. So if we think about the unique circumstances that have put Latinas behind at this moment, and we address it from a policy and a structural and a local solution and apply those things, 
the rest of the country will will begin to to pick itself up and build that inclusive economy that Lucy is referring to. So the numbers don't surprise me, but it worries me that if we don't center this conversation, and I'm not saying it selfishly, I'm saying it because our country needs to build this inclusive economy in order for us to prosper in a way for the country to withstand crises after crises, right? We need that, it's like a rubber band, right? We need that strength to be built and Latinas are have to be at the center in order for us to um, build an economy that will work for the long run. Um, so I hope that answers your question, Damian. Uh, the numbers are not new. They've been around um, and we need to address them with a sense of urgency and at the scale that the problem requires. We do represent 60 million people in this country. Um, we've already talked about our contribution and what we didn't mention, $2.7 trillion in consumer spending power, right? So we think about the power of, uh, we say, unleash the civic and economic power. When we invest in Latinos, we all win. No, and, and the report also states that Latino consumers uh, could be spending $660 billion more if given those opportunities. Uh, we do have some questions coming in uh, via the YouTube chat. So let me move on to the next question for uh, Bernardo. Uh, as a Latino journalist, uh, uh, reporter myself, we have been working a lot on changing the narrative about the contributions of the Latino population in the U.S. Now, this report is giving relevant data to back up these efforts. Now, it seems a nation is losing a lot of economic growth if we don't invest in Latino economic development. Uh, can you elaborate more on the impact of this report in terms of equity? Yeah, thanks, Damien. There, there's a phrase, again, that um, that we came up in, in one of the, uh, the talks we did that you know, th this is no longer a Latino issue. Th this is a, this is a, an American necessity. And if you, if you see the amount of workers that you will need in, in different, um, you know, across the different occupations that are required uh, to continue growing the economy going forward, there's just no way that this can happen without the contribution in a more significant way of Latinos in the economy. So, um, again, it's it's not only the right thing to do. I mean, there there is an, an economic reason why this is something that we need to rally around as as a nation. And so, um, yes, uh, hopefully, again, this is this is a, a big opportunity to start doing more of that. Uh, thank you, Bernardo. We ourselves have to uh, consume this report, digest it, and find out what we're, we're going to do about it. Uh, uh, so, uh, Lucy, uh, does McKinsey uh, have any plans to follow up on this report? Indeed. If anything, we just had more questions, as you can imagine, right, as we started digging into the data. But I think for us, it's not not enough. The data is not enough, right? Insights without action is an incomplete. So it's really thinking about, you know, what are those you know, experiments, actions that can be taken, again, at an enterprise level, at a, you know, city level, at a state level, at a national level, right, that can help us realize this opportunity. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, to Bismarck, uh, now we mentioned your uh, farm worker roots. You do have an amazing story of the American dream. You came to the U.S. as a child and then created one of the most successful software companies and now are an active investor. Tell us a little bit more about your path to success. Uh, definitely. Uh, growing up, the most successful person I knew um, was my uh, mother's brother, who was an orthopedic surgeon, started a hospital in, in Manzanillo, Colima in Mexico. And so when I was accepted to study at Stanford, uh, 
I was going to be a doctor. I was going to follow his path. But I, I came to the, the Silicon Valley in 98, didn't even know it was called the Silicon Valley. Uh, and instead of going and becoming an MD, I uh, studied economics, computer science, and ended up working at a lot of different technology companies. And when I graduated, I ended up going to Google, and that really opened my eyes on the opportunities that were available in technology. And uh, I was there for four and a half years, then left and started a video platform company. Uh, we grew it and we sold it in 2014 for over $400 million and then started WiseLine and have started a couple of other technology companies since and have start also started to invest. And I'm, a, I'm very much an optimist. So um, a little bit like the, this report, I, I see a lot of opportunities. I, I feel like this is the, the Latinos in, in the U.S. are obviously a very big market, but the Spanish-speaking world is an even bigger market. Uh, and I think Latinos are uniquely positioned to be able to go and, and tap into that. And because we are, we understand culturally what we like and what we want, I think we're uniquely positioned to be able to go after those opportunities. And so as I look at uh, the last decade of, of investing, the number of, of Latino started startups and not just the Latinos that come from landed gentry in South America, but Latinos who look and sound like me, um, whose parents come from, you know, who, immigrant parents who come from humble beginnings is just increasing year over year. And so I am very optimistic that uh, things are changing and we are going to see more and more representation uh, within these high growth areas and areas of opportunity. A glass, a glass half full kind of guy. Thank you, Bismarck, Thank you, Bismarck uh, for that. We have a lot of questions for you still, but I see that the questions are coming in from the audience. So let's go to some of those first when we have time. We'll get back to some of these other questions that we had prepared. And this can be for anybody, any one of our panelists. Is this a question of education? How do we improve education outcome among Latinos? Who wants to tackle that one? I'll jump in because I'm very passionate about this one. When I when I saw the report and I saw the generational wealth piece in terms of the, the the shift that is happening. So much of that is due to education. So many of us, I'm sure, even on this panel can share how we were the first one to go to college and therefore took our careers, took off. So it, I, I want to address the question, not from the personal perspective, right? I think there is a our parents have come here because they want us to have better opportunities than they had themselves. And it started with an investment in education for us. What needs to shift again are the structural barriers that get in the way of Latinas and Latinos completing college and using that those degrees to enter jobs that are high paying and high demand jobs. So in addressing that question, we have to look at the loans that we have to take to finish that education? How do we begin to unburden that component so that more Latinos and Latinas can pursue a four-year and postgraduate education? The second that we have, the second thing that we have to consider is we have folks who've graduated from four-year schools and have those engineering degrees, the medical degrees. And yet when they enter the sectors in which they are prepared for, they are still 
below those that, that wage gap that we've been talking about. So in the corporate sector, how do we begin to tear down some of the barriers that get in the way for those highly educated Latinos to break through into jobs that will pay them high salary jobs? So I, I'm, I'm answering and saying that the desire, I mean, we've seen college, uh, high school graduation rates increase in the last decade by over 25, 30%. We see the entry into college continuing to increase at the same pace. But what we're not seeing is a completion, and it's because financial reasons. Um, I mean, I, I, I can talk about issues of racism within the university sector, of how people feel excluded and like they don't belong because we haven't created the right environments for people Latinas and Latinos to see themselves in these institutions as professors and faculty members talking back to them and really acknowledging their lived experiences in those classrooms. Um, there's so many things that we can unpack in this conversation, but things that we can't undo by just shifting the financial and the structural barriers that get in the way of completing college. One, one, one thing, thing I'll add, I'll add um, which I think is really important. important. So, so growing up, growing up working, working in the fields, in the fields everyone, everyone that, I, that I've met that had, had a similar, similar background. background. Um, and, and this idea of going to college and meeting professionals, professionals just I, we, didn't I, we didn't see it. Um, and, um, and I think, and it's, I think because it's because if you leave your country, country to come to the States, it's very likely that you weren't a professional in the country that you're leaving. And so I think it's really important to have uh, more, mentors uh, more mentors and examples, and examples. Um, um, so people, so can, people actually can actually point, point to someone, to someone and, say, and say, that's, that's the path, the path that, I'm that I'm going to follow. And so, and so I, I think, I, I think as, a group, as a group, we need to we make need sure, to make that, sure we that we place an importance on education. On education. I, think I think every parent should aspire to, to be able to send their, their, their kids to school and that it doesn't start in high school, it doesn't start in college, it starts when they're in kindergarten. They, they, they need to be able to go to school. They parents need, parents to, understand need to understand that, that they can't miss, that, 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 that grades, grades matter, and that you build a foundation from, from, the, from the early, early, early ages. ages. And, and, I and, and I think that we, we, we as a community, as Latinos, we, we need to take that as a responsibility as individuals to help others and make sure, and make that, sure we that we are present and, and the younger, the younger population, population can point to, to people who people have, have succeeded, who have gone, who have gone to college, and they can and say, they can I, say can I can do that too. A good point. Uh, I remember as a kid, I wanted my aspiration was to, to be a tractor driver. Why? Because they were in an enclosed cabin and it got me out of the fields being hunched over. It got me from getting mud on my hands. And so that was my aspiration. Then, you know, college was the alternative to field work. And so I ran the college. But we, we know we need uh, to hear some, some of what some of the consequences are uh, if you don't pursue the higher education. What are you going to do 10 years from now? Uh, you mentioned uh, your Google roots of Bismarck, but this can go to actually anybody. When do we slap this report on the on the table uh, of the board of Google, the table of the board of uh, Meta uh, and all these big companies? Is there more uh, that major employers can do to address the issues of this report? This is from one of the guests. Who wants to tackle that one? I'm, I'm happy to start on this one, Damien. Indeed, employers, I mean, our clients are asking us about this, right? And, and so what has been really gratifying to see as we've shared this report is the desire for conversation on how do we play a role in this, right? And so, you know, as employers, and Jacqueline alluded to some of this, 
it all begins with understanding who's your workforce today, right? And how is your workforce advancing and getting promoted in the organization? Uh, what we've seen through, through this and other reports, such as Women in the Workplace, which is our collaboration with LinkedIn, looking at the status of women um, in the American workforce, there are some real challenges, particularly in what we call the first rung, that promotion from the entry-level job to that first manager role. And so when you think, you know, as an employer, identify and set in some aspirations, ensuring, for example, that your advancement processes, your performance reviews are free of bias, that you're being thinking with a very diverse lens as to who you're hiring, where are you hiring from, creating the opportunities, right? Bismarck talked about the importance of mentorship and sponsorship, understanding how that's happening in the organization, right? What are the opportunities that are being created for, you know, learning new skills, continue to have a learner mindset that is so key. These are all things that, you know, can happen. And indeed, our, our clients are taking action on, but we, we need for this to be more pervasive, right? It's still early days, I would argue. All right. Next question is, uh, when you say the Latino community is not a monolith, uh, can you drill down on that? Is that by country of origin or something else? My guess is that uh, not all Latinos think like Puerto Ricans. Not all Latinos think like Cubans or think like Venezuelans. Who wants to uh, tackle that one? Uh, that? I, I'm, more, I'm more than happy to take that one. We, we actually um, did the analysis by generation, and we did the analysis by country of origin. And, and, um, and what we found was, again, that there were some meaningful differences in terms of, of income, in terms of wealth. Um, I, I think that what's really encouraging is that second and third generations are doing much better than the generations before them. That's particularly the case when, when it comes to, to wealth. And, and then, uh, again, there were some, some significant differences that, that we found, uh, especially between, you know, Mexican-Americans and, and the other groups when it comes to income and, and wealth. So th there is the aspect that it's more cultural, but just even in macro numbers, um, you know, there, there are a lot of, of, of differences that we found in doing the, uh, in doing the report. All right, thank you, uh, Bernardo. Uh, let's see, this next question is also from a guest. Uh, are there structural policies that reinforce glass ceilings for Latinos? Uh, that's for anybody, uh, any one of our four panelists. Are there structural policies that reinforce glass ceilings for Latinos? Who has the magic answer? <laughs> I think there are multiple answers and I'd love for Lucy and Bernardo to jump in on this because I know they probably have looked at some of these. Um, we talked a few about, a few about them um, in terms of childcare kind of being some of those struck those ceilings that keep Latinas, for example, from taking in higher responsibility jobs that will allow them to balance uh, life at home and life at work. Um, I think of the uh, structural barriers of of n not having access points. So when I think about like our biculturalism, it's not that just we speak two languages. Um, Bismarck tapped into this. We come from, we like to say 200% Latinos, 100% American and 100% from wherever country we're from. And that is a benefit to other com companies. How do we um, formalize that value added that we bring into companies with structural policies when it comes to interviewing, for example. So um, Lucy talked about the performance tools that are used. Uh, big companies have to reassess the structural pieces that they put in place in terms of interview and outreach. Um, are they looking for those bicultural um, 
emotional intelligence that Latinos and immigrants bring to jobs and fitting that in to the ways where we do outreach and recruitment and bring folks into our companies. And that's just a small a small answer. I'm sure there's more that Lucy and Bernardo can add to that. It's an important one. Uh, and you want, Lucy or Bernardo, you want to chime in or are we good? Um, no, I, I mean, maybe just to echo some of what Jacqueline has said, indeed, in the focus of our research, right, we really were trying to understand, right, what were some of those barriers that were getting in the way when we were looking, for example, at Latino consumption, right? And so these were real barriers, right? Like, for example, in accessing capital, if you don't have a financial institution that is even within driving distance, right, and how you're building connections, right, that gets in the way, and that's very real for a lot of Latinos in this country. Same thing with healthcare, as Bismarck was alluding to earlier. One of the, the places where we saw big differences, for example, access to broadband, which suddenly became all the more critical during the pandemic, right? So indeed, there, the, these barriers are, are very real and need to be addressed. Mm -hmm. Last thing, I, it's such an important question, I mean, and I also think about the upskilling, right? What does it look like for us to upskill our workers where they're not losing, losing income along the way, right? Is there responsibility and the onus on the worker who's maybe working two jobs to maintain, especially here in California, to keep a roof over their heads and food on the table because the cost of because inflation is rising so quickly? How do we instill this upskilling? with policies that allow folks to get those benefits of upskilling and not at a cost of their income being cut because they just can't afford to do that. So how do we work that into local policies to create those opportunities in a way that people won't suffer more if they choose to get those additional skills to help them get into the workforce? All right, thank you, Jacqueline. Looks like we have uh, time for uh, one more question, and this is the same question for all of our panelists. Uh, if you can give us your answer in about uh, one minute uh, or so, uh, we're going to start uh, with uh, Lucy, Bismarck, Bernardo, and Jacqueline, hopefully in that order. Uh, question is, over the next year, uh, what will be your individual focus as you look to expand Latino economic opportunity? Um, so looking to expand Latino economic opportunity, clearly a big priority for me personally and the firm, right? And I think for us is to, as I alluded to earlier, is this idea of insights to action, continuing to go deeper into the insights around what works, right? What can help unlock this opportunity? And then looking for those opportunity to partner with others around realizing it. Because again, I just get very excited by the potential here. I am also an optimist and I think this stronger, inclusive economy is what we should all be aspiring to. All right, Bismarck, over the next year, what will be your individual focus as you look to expand Latino economic opportunity? Oh, absolutely. So in Mexico, we, we discovered that we couldn't find a particular skill set about four years ago, and we launched our own academy program um, to, to train and bridge that gap between the talent and the experience that was required. Uh, it was an incredible success. We had about 300 people apply, 25 people were let in, 24 completed the program. We ended up hiring 15 of those, of those 24. We've now taught, I think, over 35,000 people um, uh, with these programs, hired a good percentage, but they're free programs. And one of the things that we're planning to do this year is bring them into the communities um, because we believe that talent is evenly distributed. Uh, it's just that opportunity and experience isn't, and we believe that we can do that with Wise on Platform. And we're obviously going to continue to to bring world-class healthcare with Me Salud, and, and hopefully, if you're healthy, it's easier for you to go to school, it's easier for you to go to work. Can we clone you, uh, 
Is that possible, Bismarck? I don't know if we can clone you. <laughs> nice job. I appreciate uh, your, your input and insight. Uh, Bernardo. So two things from my side. Um, I, I live in Chicago, and uh, as Lucy said, we want to move from just insight to action. So we, we're actually going to be working in, in Illinois and in Chicago in particular in a public-private uh, partnership just to try to, um, you know, get, get into interventions that could help close the gap in this part of the country. The second thing is um, the, the study that we did last year on consumers identified a willingness uh, to pay more by Latino consumers and, uh, and a gap in satisfaction. And we weren't able to go deep enough to understand the why. So this time around, um, I, I will be leading one of these studies to understand what is the source of uh, insatisfaction on Latinos so that we can then turn to our clients and say, you know, beyond doing right, here's a great opportunity for, for you to go out and, and close it. So those are the two things that I will be focused on. That is wonderful. And Jacqueline, finally to you, uh, over the next year, what will you, what will be your individual focus as you look to expand Latino economic opportunity? Well, I think you caught me to, uh, it's, it's really to clone folks like Bismarck. Um, there are so many. <laughs> I think of Beatriz Acevedo, who heads up Suma Wealth. I think of Anordo Avalos with his Avalos Foundation that he runs to invest in young people. I think of folks like Javier Gutierrez, who's investing in Latino entrepreneurs. We want to be able to invest together with them over $25 million into Latino-led organizations and help incubate all the ingenuity and all the creativity and all the grit and determination that exists in our community community and scale that. Because in California, we represent 40% of the population. So if we can showcase and really lift up Latinos, we know that it will have a national implication. And the last thing, Damian, it's so important for us right now to shift this conversation of the great resignation of the American worker to the great promotion of the American worker. Our families, our grandparents, and our parents have sacrificed so much to give and invest in this country. It's our turn now to promote the sons and daughters and the families themselves to be able to have the opportunities that they have so fought for and believed in um, and invested it with tangible resources, dollars, talent, to Bismarck Point, connecting them with the mentors that are in our community and lifting those opportunities up and scaling them. That is the hope and aspiration of the Latino Community Foundation. And we also want to leverage over $100 million in federal and state resources so that our Latino organizations have the access that is being put before them right now by our federal and state leaders. Great. Uh, you mentioned Javier Gutierrez. Uh, he's a good friend and he's the kind of guy that all you have to do is ask. He is all in when it comes to issues like this. Well, I know we could go on for much longer discussing uh, these issues with this great panel, but that brings uh, to an end today's program. I would like to again thank McKinsey for its report of this program and for producing the important report, um, The Economic State of Latinos, The American Dream Deferred. I'm Damian Trujillo of NBC Bay Area, and this Commonwealth program is now adjourned. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support.